Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler. And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things. Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. Let's dive in. So today, we're talking about types of players. Player types are something that are very common throughout gaming nowadays. We all know the power gamer, the story gamer, all these concepts where we categorize or stereotype players based on how they interact with games. And it's something that's very common in Dungeons and Dragons. Everybody shows up to the game with something different, I feel like. They want something different out of it, right? Like, not everybody is going to be there for the same reason. They may all enjoy being friends and hanging out, but they're sometimes going to want to show up for a little bit more dice rolling or a little bit more. Everybody has a specific thing that you could say they're looking for out of the game. Definitely, and that's why different people are attracted to different games, right? But the question, I guess, is how would you categorize player types? And yeah, I mean, I agree. There are different games for different things. You know, a GURPS game is definitely not going to give you the same thing that a D&D game is, which is definitely not going to scratch the same itch that Paranoia might, right? Definitely not. And I think it depends how you set up those classifications. If we look at the organization by how they interact with the game, it's going to be more specific to a, a certain game or a certain system. Whereas we look at more of why do they interact this way or seek these things, it'll be a little bit more universally applicable to different games and different systems. We're going to cover frameworks that address both of those. So as a DM, let's say, how do you spot what player types can show up at a table? Or what? maybe tell me about from the DM's perspective more so than what the types are. Like when you show up at a table, what are some of the things you do to start thinking about what player types might show up at your table from the very start of it. I think generally you observe how your players interact with the game. You may not be able to get the why right away, but you'll definitely be able to pick out a power gamer who is very obsessed with statistically being better versus someone who is simply interested in more of the acting or role play aspects and they could care less about the numbers and the crunch. Right. And it's probably worth saying, too, I think that no one is a single player type, right? There are very, 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 very few. There's, you know, we're, we're complicated people, of course. We all play Dungeons and Dragons, so duh, we should be complicated people, obviously. But everybody's got maybe a one thing that they like more than the others, but there are maybe multiple things that they enjoy quite a bit. I think that's really important. And it's one of the dangers of when we use player types as a concept is we tend to stereotype or pigeonhole. And no one is all one type. There's many different ways to run games. And we'll talk about that when we talk about frameworks versus types. I know for me, when I learned to DM the game, it really expanded the, the different kinds of things I enjoyed out of the game. But let's dive into the types that there are. So when did you first discover this concept of player types? Because I'm pretty sure it goes back away. It does, but it's it's changed over the years. You know, I, I think in second edition... Back in the 80s, it was mostly like, are you a power gamer or are you a role player? And it really is back to that old debate of R-O-L-L versus R-O-L-E. And, you you know, you'd have like Hackmaster style or very crunchy games that were, were very targeted at 
role players who love to roll the dice and be a power gamer uh, versus the kinds of character actors or, or storytellers who wanted to really focus on telling the stories. But I think since that time, there have been a, a bunch of different people who have thought about this and written about it and the different kinds of if they're not necessarily in buckets that somebody's going to fit into, some hallmarks of what people tend to look for, which is useful to know, especially as a DM, because then you know how to give it to them, which makes the game better for them, which in turn makes the game better for you. So, you know, but I think the classic one that like the the first one that really made us start talking about it generally was the emergence of the difference between a power gamer, a classic power gamer versus like a... a uh, I guess you maybe say some combination of a method actor, or a storyteller, a role player. So, you know, the power gamer you'd know because they were the ones who would focus their characters on high stats. They'd have a dump stat. Usually it would be way ridiculous. They'd, they'd always be interested in what is the, the thing they can do to find more loot? How can they get a Vorpal sword if they can? What, what more pluses can they add to their armor? How does it stack? You know, where what do we do with all the treasure? They usually would have a spreadsheet or they would tally all they'd, they'd be an accountant somebody that would tally all the numbers you know everything like that and uh and they would have the math down pretty pat um so you know it was it wasn't hard you could look at the character sheets and you'd see one person drew like a picture on the back of their character and the other one has macroed out you know pre-calculated attacks all the way to level 20 in rows you know with different conditional modifiers and cover and not cover and you know, it was, it was sort of obvious. And I think it's important to be able to recognize these differences uh, because sometimes it's just not going to be a good fit. No matter what you do, you may just have totally different interests that you're coming to a game for. And it's something that new DMs have trouble, you know, when a player walks away from their table or their game, they're devastated. And sometimes it's the best thing for both the DM and the players because they're just might be looking for something that your game doesn't offer enough right. of. Right. And that's not a bad thing. Right. That's one of the beauties of of the game with Dungeons and Dragons is that you can, it's so able to be flexible and serve so many different people. You can run so many different types of games within this game system. And we always say, you know, as long as people are having fun, you're probably doing good. There's not really a true right or wrong pl way to play. As long as you're not like ruining other people's fun at the table. The, uh, I always say like, Hey, if your players are coming back every week, you're probably doing okay. Yeah. I would say these are more, these types are more, a way to think about the game and have a conversation with it, with other people about it, so that you can get a sense of what it is you're in it for. To ask this of yourself and to talk about other players, because the game works best when it's a collaborative game, right? And when we're all working towards some shared sense of fun. But we have to know what we find fun for that to even make sense. It helps. When you know what your players are coming to the table for, you can make sure there's some of that in the game so they'll stay happy and content and engage with the content that you create. So the first person I came across who had any kind of thought about this was Robin Laws. And he had written a bunch of different books about it. And I actually encountered some of his literature one year at Gen Con, of all places. And I was captivated by it because it was a really thoughtful and pretty concise, articulated analysis. Uh, and he, he broke out some of the things that I had kind of come to learn about the game, but use different terms for it. And he used the same terms for some of them. I was like, well, that's cool. It makes it easy to hook into it. So um, he talked about the Power Gamer, um, but he also talked about some other ones. And you've read about Robin Laws too. So what else has he got? Yeah, Robin Laws, uh, let me just point out how great the title of that book is. His name is Robin Laws, and the title of the book is Robin's Laws for Good GMing. This is one of the first <laughs> books that was really kind of focused on 
GMing and the skills surrounding that. Now you'll find hundreds of blogs and books dedicated to this topic. But he kind of was one who really formalized the system and gave names to these things. And it kind of really affected the game and the legacy continues to this day. We're going to talk about it in a little bit about how you can open a Dungeons Masters guide now in fifth edition and see uh, this influence quite, quite clearly. Yeah, I mean, and he's also friends with some of the like RPG hobby is not a big hobby. And the designers all rub elbows with each other at the conventions and they often write books for each other. So he knows a bunch of the guys who I think I might even be friends with Mike Merles, you know, like they know each other and they talk about it too. And now in the age of the internet, we have blogs, everybody blogs about it. They all do all kinds of stuff. And so it's very much more, I guess, easy to access this info than it ever was. That book back in the day was a big deal because you didn't know what other people's DMing styles and philosophies were as much because you couldn't hop on the internet and share it. You had to go play in their game or go to a convention. Right. So let's go through some of the uh, the actual types uh, that Robin laid out because they we still talk about them till this day. Right. So I've talked a lot about the Power Gamer. I think the Power Gamer is a pretty obvious one to spot. It's uh, This is the character that is built for one particular thing usually, and it's to win. And it's it's like they have the best stats, they have the best stuff, they've optimized, they know the rules really well. Sometimes you might accuse this in a prior version of being a rules lawyer, but I don't think that they're really quite the same thing. The Power Gamer is the one who really focuses on how they can best optimize everything that they possibly can. And they they want to continue to get as much as they can out of the world with their character. What do you do in an encounter for that? Uh, Just make sure they have a chance to feel powerful or cool or, you know, give them a chance to optimize. Yeah, and and give an eye toward, I guess as a DM, like if you you see a power gamer, it might be a power gamer, uh, you can always just drop loot, you know, geared maybe a little bit toward them. It doesn't have to be obvious, maybe sometimes, depending upon the person. But there's, a, I think there's a trick, too, about power gamers. You know, it's like they want crunch. They want a lot of crunch. They want to just, like, chew they through like stuff. Crunch. They do. They like tactics. They like to build maybe super awesome characters, you know. And if you have one of them at your table, they're probably going to be pretty good at what they do. Uh, but being cool is easy to do for them because you just give them lots of stuff to kill. And they're going to eat it up. And you can do that pretty wantonly with most any kind of player. Almost no player is going to turn that down. Don't be satisfied if they're able to show off their abilities and if they're able to build on that. For example, you know, give them the ability to quest for a sword that gives them the stat that they're looking for. That will probably make their day. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of player who looks through the book and makes a plan for what they're going to do at level 18, level 15, level 13, and then also picks out magic items. And, you know, you want to, like, look at, what what their plan is and know, have some sense of what how you can feed it. And the number one thing to do is do not punish them for being a power gamer and trying to optimize. That's where they get their fun. Don't punish players, period, I would yeah, say. Yeah, like, but you, many DMs are like, oh, this guy thinks he's, oh, I'm going to punish him. Oh, he's built for this. Well, I'm going to put this in here and it's going to fuck his day up. To which I would say, maybe you should reexamine why you're a DM. I agree. <laughs> so don't punish your power gamers. Right. So why don't you tell me a little about the next one? So the next one is kind of one that I always thought was a strange category in Robin's work. It's butt kicker. Uh, It's kind of a mix of a casual gamer and someone who likes to simply kind of instigate things. 
Um, they're really at the game to beer and pretzel style play. They're there to blow off steam. They don't want too much challenge. They don't want to think too hard. Um, they like fighting. They get bored when there's no action. Uh, it's, it is kind of what it says, a butt kicker. They're looking, mm-hmm. they're probably your players who love combat. Um, they and might also play war games. Exactly. And they're, they need something that lets them kind of blow off steam. I found two really, it's interesting to hear you, I guess, categorize them as like a casual gamer mixed with, I guess, what was the other one that you uh, uh, would mix it with? Casual gamer and someone who's a little bit more into the mechanics. Mechanics, like a board, yeah. 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 But They're a little fighty. They, they often don't really care so much if it's that they're fighting a really highly tuned monster that has special abilities or just mooks. They're just in it for the action. Right, you know, so you can you can usually satisfy this player by providing them lots of means to exercise what it is they built themselves for. And they'll often give you a couple of different hooks to be kind of in which they can kick butt, you know, so they, they might play a gishy character that has some magic and has some fight. Uh, they might play... Um, a rogue that also casts spells. You know, they, they, they'll they find a couple different ways to mostly, like, deal damage and be a badass. And that's, I think, the crux of it, is this is a player who, like, wants to come back at the end of the day or wherever the game is and be like, you know what? This is escapist fantasy, and this escapist fantasy, I am going to just be awesome. They want to kick butt. And oftentimes, these are players who enjoy a good old-fashioned dungeon crawl, a little more hack-and-slash-style play. They don't really care about being challenged as much in regards to a complicated narrative or puzzles or intrigue. Yeah, they they want to see a clear oper- path a clear path to victory and they want to be able to work for it maybe They're, a little bit, but you know, they don't want to have to really engage their brains too much. They're the one who kills the NPC when they talk too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, often. <laughs> So why don't you tell us about the next one? Yeah, so I, I've had the great fortune to have some really good tacticians at, at my tables over the years. Uh, and a tactician is a kind of player who really enjoys solving complicated puzzles. And they can look like anything from a political machination between different houses that they want to negotiate their way between, along with all of the role play to back it up, if you think that you can do that as a DM, to literal puzzles, you know, riddles and and things like that, like Towers of Hanoi type thing, uh, or even just how to solve particular combat encounters. You know, they really like the, the planning, they like the strategy, they like to create a plan in their mind, and then they like to execute it. They're usually the player who's also your accountant and the awesome. one who's like, what's our plan, group? What are we going to do in this combat? Like, awesome. what's what's the plan? And the tactician is sometimes the player who has issues when other people do less optimal decisions in combat yeah, or things, things that don't play into their strategy, uh, things like that. For your tactician, you just got to give them some complex, realistic problems that they can work themselves through. A word of caution about tacticians, though. That while they are very good to have at the table, one of the things that it, as a GM... Or a DM, I guess. As a DM, you should keep your eye on is planning can take a long time, especially in a group. You know, trying to decide how exactly to breach the door or how, trying to decide how exactly to attack the orc camp. You know, there's a lot of depth there, especially since we're all co-imagining it together, right? Like you can make it all up, whatever, and it can go really on for a while. So that will make other players, the power gamer included, but other ones will come to get bored Oh, definitely, because the tactician is trying to minimize risk and maximize reward. If right. they can avoid the combat entirely, get what they're after, right. and it's the best mathematical, like the least amount of health lost and the most amount of things gained, 
they get off on that. They love that. But you're going to have your other players, like the butt kicker, who's like, fuck that. I don't want to sneak past this giant. I want to kill him. We've been talking for two hours, and I can't kill you because you're another player, not an NPC. So now I'm frustrated. And then you get murder hoboing. Exactly. So uh, I think, you know, these are all sort of general players. They'll play a bunch of different types. But I think it's worth talking about one of the other ones that maybe focuses a little bit on, on one particular thing. This one's very recognizable. The specialist is your friend who plays a caster every time in every game in every system because that's what he does. Um, the other common one you usually see is the person who's always a ninja. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're people that they really like a particular character type. They, their character tends to be a little bit of an avatar of themselves. And they will play that in every campaign, in every setting, and be totally happy doing it. Yep. Let them encourage it. Let them do what they like to do. It's it's honestly, specialists are one of the easiest players to manage because it's so clear what they enjoy doing. Yeah, I mean, you just have to, I think, they're usually pretty obvious about it. They, they tend to go up like, I always play a caster, or I always play a ninja, or can I play a f- big fighty smashy type? I'm really good with a big, I like being the tank. You know, they, they tend to broadcast it because they, they know it about themselves. They know that's what they want. That's why they chose it here. They want the group to recognize them for that role. Right. So, you know, it just, I guess the work is you just have to make sure that you give them enough for, it doesn't have to be like built around their character or them as a player. You just have to have enough to like continue to give them what they want, some growth and progression in there and, and do. So it's not just like, oh yeah, we also have ninjas here, yeah. but I don't really want to deal with any of that. So I'm going to ignore it kind of, and therefore your character, that's not going to yeah. work. Just make them, give them chances to feel special. Give yeah. them chances to shine, like little spotlight moments. Like if they're your sneaky rogue character, give them the chance to do it. And exactly. that will make them happy. They focused on this thing. Give them a chance to use it. Yeah, let them use that. It's really disappointing if they don't get the ability to use what they've come for. They also usually don't very often like not getting to use it. You throw, you know, somebody always plays a rogue and you have a very, very fighty mcfighter pants war and you don't give any opportunity for a sneakiness they're you know they'll rally probably because they're a good player but they're not going to enjoy it hopefully they rally yeah hopefully so the next one i think is one that you can give pretty good insight to given your own background (laughs) acting (laughs) yeah i went to bard college and it was really interesting because a lot of us would get together as a group and play D &D, and i mean critical role is a great example of this when you get a bunch of actors in a room playing D&D, it can really go into really cool places. It's interesting. Uh, but method actors like to get into the idea of a character. You know, they, they sink into the mindset or the embodiment or how the feel is of a, of a particular idea they have for a character. And they'll often do things like, well, but my character would do this. And they think about what the most reasonable thing is or that whatever makes the most sense for that character to do, even if it's not necessarily what would advance the plot or what the other players want or what would make a good story. You know, they are acting. And it's it's not like necessarily, I'm acting, look at me, maybe. But it's, it's mostly that they like to embody the idea of who this person is as much as they possibly can. And it's important to keep in mind that they may not even talk about in their character's voice in first person. They may say, my character says this or does this. Uh, just the lack of talking in character doesn't mean that character is not a method actor. Usually, usually it's the most hallmark sign is that they talk in character a lot and they're very comfortable doing it. But you will eventually run across some that still use third person when they mm-hmm. do so. And 
they're still very, very strongly identifying with the character and making decisions based on what the character would do. These are your players who stereotypically we say are happy when there wasn't a die roll the whole night. We awesome. just role played through everything. Right. We solved all of the conflict without having to fight. It was great. I, I usually spot these character these these uh, I usually spot these players by looking at how much effort they give toward their backstory or who their character is. And, you know, when you have a player show up and they have a write-up, it's like a page long for their character, you have a pretty good sense that this person is really invested in who this character is and what they want out of the character. They might be method actor. That, that six-page backstory is a giveaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But counter to that, I think, but related to it, Robin Laws also talks about another yeah, one. Kind of another side of the equation where instead of being this this player you could call them the storyteller because they're much more focused on the narrative as a whole they are also less worried about experience points less worried about numbers but rather than being focused on how their character fits into the narrative they're more worried about that overarching narrative structure they want it to have a good resolution they want it to feel like a book or a movie they want it to have narrative structure and these are your players that that's what they're looking for they want to go and play a book, play a movie, have that kind of adventure. Mm -hmm. And you need, for these players, make sure there's an ending, make sure there's resolution for things. That's what they're looking for. Because anyone who knows who's played D&D, collaborative role-playing games do not lend themselves to good narrative structures. No, at best, Dungeons & Dragons or any role-playing game is is a, a half-decent first draft of a story. <laughs> well, you come up with a good draft and then your players fucking ruin it. I mean, that's why I say half-decent, you know? <laughs> it's like the best you can... It, and, if, and that's maybe if you're lucky, you have a bunch of people who are like, hey, we all know how to tell a story pretty good. This is okay. Yeah. But it's not nearly ever going to be as polished as the books we read or the movies we see or the TV shows we watch or any of that. I, I actually think for this reason that storytellers are some of the hardest ones... They're tough to please. To please, they are. Because when you start pleasing other player types like a butt kicker or a power gamer or maybe even a tact especially tacticians you know the the storyteller is going to ask this question constantly of well where's the dramatic tension and if there isn't dramatic tension they might just start making dramatic tension they want to know what happens next they might do it with other players they might do it within the carrot within the npcs you know in the conflict you just don't know but but they often will be very frustrated if there wasn't yeah like uh, an arc to the episode, whatever it is you're running, your session, and there doesn't feel like there's a stronger arc overall that they can work toward. You know, they pay a lot of attention to pacing. They pay a lot of attention to uh, how, how the tone of this of the game feels, you know? I think that one of the things you can do really well for this person is to really maybe pay attention to pacing. If they have the sense that things move quickly, they'll also usually intuit that... That means that the the tone can change quickly, too, and they'll begin to riff off of it. Yeah, give them plot points and some narrative structure. They do not want an endless sandbox. They don't like when the campaign or the session feels aimless. They need to feel like they're working towards that narrative goal. Right. So let's talk about the last one, which is the one that people never seem to understand. I love this player type, and a lot of DMs really are frustrated by it, I think, because they're invested in the work they do in the game, but I really... I can't sing the praises enough of this player type. It's the casual gamer. I mean, when I first started DMing this, I, I thought these people hated what I was doing. They weren't engaging at all. And it took me a little while to understand that they're simply approaching the game from a different angle than than others. I didn't always know about this or wasn't willing to accept that this was like a... You felt like it was a failure of your own as a DM because they weren't engaging. Yeah, or just that they... <sighs> 
they weren't playing the same game that we were playing. But after playing a bunch of different types of games, different role-playing games, different systems, different you, settings. You see them everywhere. Yeah. And and this is the kind of player who, it's usually called beer and pretzels, right? You show up and you're like, hey. Or the dirty casual. Right. I'm gonna, I'm here to play and I'm going to pick, I don't care, give me a pre-gen. You know, I'll play a fighter. I'll play another human fighter. I don't care. I always play human fighters. And they may not really know, like, what they're in it for. They may just like to show up and play games. They like to toss some dice. Mostly, they're just there to hang out. Yeah, they want to hang out with the group. They usually, not always, but they usually don't want too much spotlight time. They're usually pretty low-key, and they're pretty happy just hanging out. They care less about what game you're running. Yeah. This is probably the same person who's like, hey, you know what? We're not doing D&D this week. But they'll still show up and play magic cards or board games or whatever, right? It's all in the same category for them. They're just like a nice, easy, casual casual affair. Don't try to pull those players into the spotlight. Leave them alone. Let them be casual. Don't pressure them to engage more than they want to. That's how you lose these players. They want to relax and unwind. They don't want to be put on the spot. No, not usually. And and they're usually rally for whatever, you know? But uh, I guess don't push them into something that they don't want to do. And they'll tell you, you know, pay attention to where they're engaged in having fun. They're, they're also really great because you can be like, hey, we need to look up this rule real quick. And they'll go, okay, I'll do that. You know, they'll go look up whatever. It's fine. Okay, so do we want to take a break for a brew? I'm a little thirsty in there. It appears to be a tavern over yonder. I'm parched. I would like to stop in and have a drink. I think we should do that. Welcome to Tavern Talk, where we have a brew, and more importantly, we toast to you, our listeners. So, what are we drinking today, Skylar? So, this is a beer called Dragon's Milk, which is entirely apropos for... I mean, it's too perfect. Right, for the game. So, you picked this one. Um, I'll start with how I feel. This is this is a bourbon barrel-aged stout, and it comes from... Where were you brewed? I'm Michigan. Michigan. Wow, Michigan? Good on you, Michigan. Anyway, so this one comes from Michigan, and... Uh, it's a 11% APV, ABV, which is pretty toasty up there, um, but it's nice. I've, I've had this one before, and I think it's a, it's a pretty good, what I would call standard barrel-aged stout. It's a one and done. You mean you drink one and then you're done? <laughs> for, for most people, it's going to be that way. I like it. It's pretty smooth and malty, and it tastes like a stout. One of the things when you get to beers and higher alcohol percentages is sometimes they start to taste less like a beer. And more like meat or barley wine. That's what I love about them. I know, but this one does a good job kind of bridging that gap. It's definitely definitely a beer. It's definitely a beer. Yeah, it's, you, it's not too there's, heavy. There's a little extra dra- dragon milk magic in there. Right. I mean, it's some not- of the, some of the Imperial Stouts, especially the ones that are high ABV, are are tough. You know, like Old Rasputin, I get one of those. Yeah. But these I can drink a few of. I don't even know why. I, I like the malty flavor. I think it makes it n- nice and rich feeling. It's pleasantly malty. So let's talk about the contest that we have going on. Right. We have a promo for the first eight episodes. Eight weeks? First eight weeks. First eight episodes. We have a promo for the first eight episodes and weeks of if you share our show, then we'll enter you in a raffle. And you are in the raffle to win the original trio of Dungeons and Dragons books. The core rule books. You got to have them. And if you already have them and you're like, oh, I already have those. Well, guess what? 
Now you can give them to one of your players and look like a boss. They make super great gifts and everybody loves them. All three are useful for DMs and players. To enter the raffle by sharing the show, you can do it on social media, like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. You can do it to a friend. We don't care how. Just send us some proof. So send us proof. You can reach us at farrealmsradio at gmail.com. You can simply share the show on Twitter and at us at Far Realms Radio. Far Realms Radio. Also Instagram. Same with Instagram. Throw a tag up there and we'll see it. If not just email us proof, it could be a text message that you said, hey, check out this show to your buddy. If you found a way to text one of us, I would be both deeply impressed and a little creeped out. I'd be a little afraid, but I'd also be kind of impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So good luck. You don't oh, need it. You- All right, I think it's time to go back to the show. I think it's time to go back to the show. Let's do it. Okay, so welcome back to the show. We're back. So, Robin Laws is, is, I think... Gamer famous because he has given a lot of thought to it. He's put out a lot of books. Um, really nice guy. I've met him at Gen Con. He's uh, signed my Esoterrorist book somewhere around here. Uh, but anyway, he's not the only one who's given a lot of thought about game theory, right? That's true. But his his game theory has really had an impact and a legacy on the game. If you open up your fifth edition Dungeons Master's Guide on page six, right at the start, you will actually see a version, it's adapted and changed over the years, of what Robin Laws had written about player types. This one is almost more focused on how do the players interact with the world. And the, you can kind of look at these, if you've heard of the three pillars of D&D, well, there's a couple more. Um, and this will kind of give you a rundown. I'm not going to go through all of them in detail, but we'll just kind of list them off here and we'll talk about and what they, these are. They actually captured some, I think, in the DMG that... Uh, maybe he blogged about it or somebody else wrote about it in a response, but weren't in his list. And uh, and I think that that's useful because there's even another one that I've come across and is often a source of trouble. But let's let's dig into the so ones in the DMG. So let's go through. We got the, the categories we have here. And it, remember, it's organized by how the player interacts with the game. So you have acting, exploring, instigating, fighting, optimizing problem solving and storytelling some of those are almost exactly the same as what you see in robin law's work and right. the others i'm sure you could draw the parallels yourself optimizing is probably your power gamer or your tactician maybe fighting is probably your butt kicker yeah, and so bet. forth i think that exploring and instigating exploring is the one that isn't in the list that we covered earlier right the explorer this is this is the the player who really wants to dig into the setting and uncover what's interesting about it. They want to find hidden clues in this living world. Yeah, and, and maybe have some understanding, learn about it and affect it in some way. They might also be interested in the how things work. How does magic work here? How do the kingdoms work? Who gives power? You know, how does the world spin? All this kind of stuff. Um and the instigating talks a little bit about the other one, I think. It comes very close to, but isn't exactly what I call a, a, a mischief maker. The instigator is the player who does things because they're bored. Yeah, I mean, they, they want things to happen. They, want, they, they like things to move along. They like events to occur. You know, this is, the, this is the kind of player who will kick in a door in a dungeon and who will try to accelerate through as many events in an event-based adventure as possible. They will get restless and just take the risk. But it's it's a little bit different, I think, than the one that's not on this list that I want to include, which is the mischief maker. Mischief maker, and the mischief maker 
is the person who really likes to do the things that you're not allowed to do in the real world. They like to misbehave. They like to be the one who's going to break the law in the fantasy setting because they can. They want to steal from the person because they can. You can think of it like many players, when they go play Morrowind or Skyrim video games, you know, the, the first thing they do is they you play it. S- you steal everything. Right, they make a Khajiit because they're the best at thieving, and then they just go steal everything because you can. And there's no consequence. If you can get caught, that's dead. That's literally what I did when I first played those games. My sister, too. And... So I think that that still exists in D&D as well. I mean, you can build a character like that, but but it's more freeform, of course. And so th- these are the players who will break the rules or do the thing you're not supposed to do. They're going to try and resist the plot hook, probably. They're not going to want to follow what the, you know, like what the obvious, all the other players are like, no, I think I'm going to go over that way because I think it's weird. They're and your, that's why I'm going to They're your it. contrarian. Yeah. And... That can be very frustrating for other players and the DM at the table. So it does require some nuance to run, but I do think it's a valuable a valuable thing to have at the table because one of the things that that person brings to the table that's easy to forget is that it doesn't matter. We made it all up. This is about having fun anyway. And if everybody is very casual about the game or, or friendly about the game, it really is a better word for it, then this person isn't going to break anybody else's fun, which I think is one of the things that is also worth just driving home, right? Like, If you have a player who you would classify as a mischief maker, what's your favorite way to handle that if they're causing a little too much mischief? They tend to make the game a little zany, maybe a little bit off tone for whatever it was supposed to be. You know, so if I'm, for instance, running um, a game that's a little bit like Vampire Hunter D, or maybe it's like Van Helsing, and they come in and they, they make a character that has a mohawk, and uh, has as close to a laser blaster as they can reasonably, rationally. And they'll know the rules, you know? Like, they, they, they'll know the rules. It, it just doesn't fit, you know? Or and maybe you're and like... that's why they like it. Right, and that's why they like it. That's exactly what they want. They want to break the rules a little bit because it's safe in D&D. So I think that there are a few things, I guess, that can be done to handle this player. One of which is accept the fact that Part of the game is that it's escapist fantasy, and you don't want to squash anybody else's escapist fantasy. So you have to have enough pliability in the game for people to come in. You can't be prescriptive. And the other is give them the opportunity for things to go awry. Maybe use some extra tools like critical fumble charts and kick them up a little bit because this player will like it when things happen that aren't supposed to. One of the things that also, this is a really scary thing for most DMs, is roll in public. The Mischief Maker loves that because it, it also shows that you're not in control. I think uh, another fun strategy that I've seen you use is something like plot twist cards, which gives them the ability to just mess with the narrative. <laughs> plot twist cards can be very useful, I think, if you have them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff like the more... I'm personally not a fan of plot twist cards because players are going to fuck that plot up enough anyway. They can. I mean, they, they definitely can. But I think that the more you can, for the for the Mischief Maker character, the more that you can show them the seams, the happier they'll be. They want to see the wizard behind the curtain, you know? So they like it when you roll in front of everybody instead of a, uh, behind a DM screen. They like it when you empower them to zag very very publicly with a card, like, like plot twist cards, because it 
helps remind everybody that, you know what, it's game. And then if they do that, you know, give them some reward so it doesn't feel like punishment, to your earlier point. right? You don't want to punish any of your players. I think a lot of younger players gravitate to this because, especially children or younger players, because they're like, oh, cool, I can do all the things that I'm not allowed to do in the real world. I can eat as much ice cream as I want. And I'm not going to get in trouble. No one can stop me. Right. So I think this is something that you see more commonly in younger players. I'm sure I, when I was 13 and playing this game, we had a lot of these players, and that's just part of the the age group, honestly, at that point. You're a teenage boy. Yeah. Like, Not that everybody who's a mischief maker is emotionally yes, stunted. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you, will, you will find all kinds of mischief makers. But I was really glad when, when they added these things to the DMG because I think it allows to have a conversation about it. And they do they do pretty well in the DMG talking about how players are maybe more than one or they enjoy multiple parts of it, you know. I like that it's at the start and so it immediately gets the DM, the start of the Dungeons Master's Guide, thinking about, okay, so how I run this game is dependent upon the players at my table. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good way to look at your game because you can do what you want to do to an extent and then your players are just not going to be interested anymore. One of the things I saw about all the different player types, and just generally I learned from conventions and also playing in different kinds of games, uh, like four different DMs, different systems, is some of what makes a good player. And I'm ashamed to say that some of the time it was because I would play a game and I would show up thinking, I'm like, yeah, all right, I'm going to play this game. It's going to be great. And I show up like I'm a normal person, whatever. And somebody shows up at the table and they just kill it. And they totally kill it. And they role play and they know the stats and they take notes and they know everybody's name. And I'm like, how did you do that? There are eight of us at this table. And I remember like three of your names. And that's because I'm friends with you guys and these guys are new, you know? So I think it's, it's, there are some things that I've seen, and you've talked about this before, I think, but taking notes during the game is really useful, like uh, some obvious stuff, like for, for players, writing down who everybody is, just like be polite. Names and proper nouns will take you very far. They will. They definitely will. I, I think you, you can be a great player regardless of player type, and I think it just comes down to a few things like Skylar was talking about, whether it be taking no- notes during play just respecting other players by coming prepared, like you said, with dice or books and being on time. Um, other things like for me personally as a DM, God, know how your stuff works. My biggest pet oh, peeve. Oh, yeah, me too. I cast this spell. I'm like, okay, what happens? They're like, I don't know. And I'm like, what have you been doing? You've just been <laughs> sitting here? Like, you have a player's handbook it, with you. It's your responsibility to know what you can do and be ready to reference it. And, and just doing these simple things can really make you a quote-unquote good player. Like, do be willing to do bookkeeping or... Yeah, I mean, sharing the tasks around, right? Like, I think running initiative is a really good one. Being being able to help run, like, the, the administration of the game requires a lot. And I think everybody benefits when we all have a little more time and investment in the game. And when the DM isn't running the whole show it just makes it easier but then there are other like there are a lot of little little optimizations to have here too yeah like one of the things that i love is i don't remember where i learned this but it was i do remember that it was a thing that i i learned it was roll your attack and damage dice at the same time oh i hate doing that i know it's a very controversial people (laughs) like no i like to but the thing is when you have a finite amount of time especially this was especially true in third edition when you get powerful enough and levels you know the fights take a long time and it's like, okay, well, we all want to play. We all want to get through this, but God, we only got through one room this time, this session. How do we optimize this? And you sit down and you look at what can we do to speed up combat? Because arguably I would say combat always takes the longest out of everything in the game. No doubt. So that means you have to look at like, okay, well, 
what takes the longest? Looking up spells, so know your stuff, looking up rules. Have your references ready. Have your references a, ready. A cheat sheet is great. But then also, there's a lot of time, especially when you're like at least 10th level, well, okay, so I have this plus, and then, uh, oh, I forgot to add this, and okay, that means I get a second attack. You know, that's part of the, th- the just as spellcasters look up their spells ahead of time and know your rules ahead of time that in also means when it comes to be your turn as a player know what you're going to roll know why you're going to roll it and be pretty solid on it you know like all right i have these extra attacks or and this extra damage because i positioned here and i'm going to use this special power as a bonus action bam here i go and then you roll maybe all of your attacks at once as opposed to roll did i hit okay dm I roll again did i hit again Okay, third attack, here we go. You know, like, roll them all three at once. Go first, second, third. And then maybe roll all your damage at the same time, first, second, third. Yeah, and if, you know, you kill the monster with your second blow and you still have a third, the DM's like, okay, well, that third attack doesn't happen because you already took it down with the second attack. That's where you run into issues with that. I think it's because I've played monks for so long. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Then the DM can just be generous and be like, just apply that attack. You could have applied to somebody other. You can move it over there. That's okay. Totally. If the DM is on board with speeding up and optimizing combat, it shouldn't be an issue. Keep keep your eye as a DM on how to do that. One of the things I was in, in an earlier game... Uh, we, we, we wanted to see, and this is a big table of like 11 of us regularly showing up. How could we speed up combat? Because we wanted to keep it going and we all were invested in the game. So we spent some time optimizing. I was like, all right, let's try some crazy things. What if we pre-roll a bunch of die rolls? And so the players, some of them, not everybody wanted to, but there was like maybe four of them. We just, they sat there, they'd show up a little early and they would sit there and roll a bunch of D20s and write down all the numbers they would get on a piece of paper, huh. like 50 of them. And then when it was their turn, they just cross off the next one. I, I've never uh, seen the strategy used. I don't think I would like to do it myself, but it makes sense. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we could do a whole episode on how to speed up combat. Right, I know there are entire right. resources out there devoted to this topic, so we're not going to cover it too much. But yeah, think about what you want to do when it's other people's turns so it doesn't get to you and everyone's waiting. You're like, uh, 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 like... Yes, things change with how initiative works, but like have an idea of what you want to do. Know what your character can do. And most of all, be willing to share the spotlight with other players. Definitely, definitely. Um, Be willing to share the spotlight. Like let that other player shine if they're doing what they're good at. Don't try to steal everybody's thunder. And the other thing with part of that is be prepared to lose gracefully. Yes. This is a phrase that I first heard, I believe, from Matt Colville, and I love it. Be prepared to lose gracefully. It's personally something I really struggle with i hate losing i am i'm the most competitive i'm the most competitive i hate losing and for me it's it's nice to play as a player i prefer to dm but as a player i really have to be more okay with losing gracefully not Mm. everyone rolls a one sometimes Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite phrases for life and for the game so be prepared to lose and it's okay that's how it goes D&D is not a game that you win. Yeah, I mean, although it, it can feel like that sometimes because you basically have the conceit. This is definitely something we should talk about more later. You definitely have the conceit of you are going to win every fight because otherwise you're not going to get experience. And uh, so, you know, there's this in, there's this incentive to, <laughs> to win. win every single fight. We have to find a way to beat this fight because, A, nobody likes to lose, of course. Nobody likes losing. But... You definitely have to become prepared. Like, okay, you are not going to win all the time. And that might mean that you get one-shotted. Sorry. You have to be very careful with making your players lose. That's a topic for another day. But forcing a surrender is so much harder than it sounds with your players. And that's something, you know, from a GM's perspective that we'll cover on another day. But 
it really boils down to you can be a good player regardless of type. Sometimes just being slightly prepared, paying attention, and not being a dick. Right. So now that we've done a lot of talking about player types and the concept of player types, let's talk about why I think player types are a stupid concept sometimes. So just like anything, there's like pros and cons. And I personally don't think player types is always the best way to analyze play or games or players in those games, mainly because player types, and we've seen this and you've noticed this probably, they really lend themselves to stereotyping, pigeonholing, and you will have people, oh, those are damn story gamers, oh, those fucking power gamers, those dirty casuals. And the hard thing to understand is that this is all how, we're categorizing people by how they interact with the game. We're not categorizing them as to why they interact with the game this way. And I think that's very important to examine that why. And I think that's one place that Robin Law's book doesn't get into, mainly because he covers so many other topics in that book. That book is fantastic. It really changed the way I GM when I first read it. I remember I first read it and I would stop and be like, this is so brilliant. This, duh, how have I never thought about this before? And it was a different way to think about the game. Um, But now another thing I've discovered later that I like even more is something known as the MDA framework, which stands for Mechanic Dynamic Aesthetic Framework. It is a model that was designed to examine video games and to see why do people prefer different games and how do they interact with it. And it really comes down to this. Everyone is unique and cares differing amounts about different quote-unquote aesthetics that we find in games. Um, Most people don't consciously think about these aesthetics. They couldn't tell you why they like things. That's something with people. People can tell you if they like something or they dislike something. They're going to be mostly terrible at telling you why. Mm -hmm. They're also going to be terrible at telling you what they want in the future. They don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, People usually don't know what they want, but they can tell you what they like and they can tell you what you don't like. Some people will be able to tell you why most won't. And it's tough because these preferences can change based on so many things. Mood, it could change based on the game medium, it could change based on the environment, the social factors. So many things can change this. It just changes over time sometimes. Right. Remember, no one person is one thing. Exactly. And that's what I, why I really like this framework. So the framework, uh, MDA, Mechanics, Dynamics, Aesthetic stands for one mechanic is the thing. It's not necessarily what we think of as a mechanic in D&D, but it's something that the game designer puts in and the player interacts with it. And that's the dynamic, right? The dynamic interaction. And through that interaction, they experience an aesthetic and certain players will seek out more than others. And games tend to serve three to four aesthetics at most, right? This is why we like certain games because it serves up certain things. XCOM is very, very different from Super Mario. Oh, yeah. They have different things. There's challenge in both, right? There's certain things that are very similar. They're both challenging. But there's other things that are very, very different. And so we're going to go through these eight aesthetics right now. It's my favorite way to kind of examine why we play games, one of my favorite ways, and and how it works. So keep in mind, everyone has a certain very amount of value that they put on these. And when you look, we'll talk about at the end how to kind of figure out what your what is important to you. So the eight aesthetics, the first one is uh, often called sensation. It's the game as a sense pleasure, meaning that that player enjoys memorable audio or visual or physical sensations. Um, This is a little bit more geared toward video games. It's that player who really cares about the graphics. Spectacle. Yeah, they need good graphics. That's a a make or break to them. But this is also very present in Dungeons & Dragons. And I'm one of these people who values this a lot. I love physical maps and the dice. I don't like theater of the mind. I want a grid. I want minis. I want these physical things. I love the PDFs that I can search, but I also love having the books in my hand. That's not the only thing that'll 
get you that though. I think that in music like, is another one. Music is one. I was going to go with Mike Shea's fantastic locations. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these kinds of things about how to make it really uh, the thing here is memorable, how to make it that sensory thing that they can think back of and have a very clear sense of in their own, in their mind's eye and yeah. their body or however they experienced it and go, I know exactly what that was. I want exactly. it again. And this is where like props and visual stuff really is handy yes. or music. Um, these players value this highly. Some people don't care at all. And that's one. It's it's a very easy one to figure out. Uh, the next one is fantasy. These are players who seek immersion into some role in the imaginary world. These are players for whom verisimilitude is vital. Um, we usually traditionally classify these people as role players. Um, they're usually content to simply exist as their character in the world. They like to act out all the NPC interactions. They love to run businesses or join organizations or have their character participate in some carnival game. Right. Um, these are people who, you know, they really value what we call role-playing. I want to um, run a shop. Exactly. These players, they want to have some role in your imaginary world. They don't want to, they want a role. They, they want to role-play within the world. Right. They might also be a knight who's in service of a particular king and is charged with a sacred duty, yada, yeah. yada, yada. So you need you know. to make sure your world is logically consistent with itself and that it makes sense. There has to be that that verisimilitude that they can enjoy that the quote-unquote immersion. Right. Um, after that, we have narrative. And narrative is the game is drama. These are very much like the storytellers we talked about earlier. You're going to see a lot of crossovers here. These are the players who seek a well-told story. The story needs to make sense. It needs to have structure. It needs to have strong hooks. It needs a direction and an ending. They care so much more about the narrative as a whole than their individual freedom or agency within that narrative, which is different from other role players, right? The fantasy gamer who we just talked about, is a little bit more focused on their role and their freedom or agency, whereas the narrative gamer, they really prefer that the overall structure of that narrative be more sound. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't like the aimless sandboxes. They like queer clear quests, clear story hooks. So that's the narrative. Remember, reminder, no one is one of these types. You are a mix of these. And we're going to talk about this at the end. And you might come in for one thing one day or another thing another day. You know, there's some days where I've like, yeah, I really want to get into this character, into this other, and the other ones I'm like, wow, I really like that sensation, that I really like that set piece that he designed. Yeah. Or you're like, I had a long day at work. I just want to drink a beer and roll some dice. I don't, I don't want to get into this. I have more of those than I can admit. I think we all do. That's that's part of being adult. So the other one, (laughs) the other one, Next, we're going to talk about challenge, and challenge is a very straightforward one, but it can be slightly confused with difficulty. So challenge is the game as an obstacle course. If you think of people who like to do speed runs or people who like platformers, this is a very clear type of gamer. They want to overcome a challenge, Um, and not only do they want to overcome a challenge, it's not just the difficulty of overcoming something difficult, it's that they derive the fun from knowing they won or lose based on their own agency and the choices they made. Right. It's not just overcoming that obstacle. It's that they know that their choices were why they did it. Right. That agency is super important to them because these are the players. If you say, oh, death, death is not a possibility in my game. They're like, done. No, no interest. Failure needs to be an option for them. It needs to be a possibility. The game needs to be a game. I often see players who are in it for this really gravitate toward organized play. I mean, I'm one of these players. I I have no interest in a game that has no challenge. If you tell me, oh, hey, there's no death in this game, I'm like, I'm out. 
For me, Dungeons and Dragons is a game. It's not a role-playing experience. I need the game to feel like a game. There doesn't have to be a clear winning and losing, but failure needs to be an option, and my choices and actions need to affect the possibility of that failure and that outcome. Right. Um, so that's challenge. Don't get it confused with difficulty. They're slightly different. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's key about challenge is you have to be able to overcome it, right? If something yes. is too difficult, then it's just too difficult. And it's baked into role-playing games. The whole challenge, you're, you're rolling checks you're rolling difficulty checks like literally the game is already a set of challenges so this is not one that you need to think about too much when you're designing a a session for your players um fellowship so this one is an interesting one these are players who seek games as social frameworks they are people who want to join the role-playing server on world of warcraft Mm. they they really just want to be a member of a community or a group um, they're very analogous to the casual players we talked about earlier. They they really want to feel like they're part of a team. Um, and they may not seem like they're interacting, but that's because they're perfectly happy hanging with the group. They may not be one that's thrust into the spotlight all the time. However, they really hate things that negatively affect team dynamics. So betrayal of a player yep. or intra-party conflicts or evil loner team members. There's a scene that this reminds me of in Seven Samurai where they're recruiting all the samurai and they find one and he's chopping wood. And he describes himself as the wood chop samurai. And he's not a particularly skillful warrior, but they bring him on board because of the attitude that he has. And he serves as the humor and the glue for the group. And these players are often that. They'll often bring snacks. They'll bring sweet things. They like it to feel like a good time for everybody. They like people to smile. Group hug players. They, they will be, exactly, group hug players. They're the ones who may be the most sensitive to group dynamics. They, they will, the ones who will clearly get upset when there's inter-partner fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it'll be clear when they're not happy. <laughs> um, why can't we all just be friends? Uh, you guys are fighting right now. It's really stressing me out. Yeah, you'll, you'll know. <laughs> Um, the next one to talk about is when we touched on when we looked at the bit from the DMG, right? Mm-hmm. Discovery. I love this. And you often hear discovery, I believe, or exploration is one of the three pillars of D&D. I think we established earlier there's a lot more than three pillars, but <laughs> whatever. We'll have qualms with that, and that's a different rant for a different day. Intentionally reductive. <laughs> so these players have this urge to not only explore the game world, but to discover things. Um, like other other. <clears throat> aspects that we've talked about it really depends on their play agency right they need to know that think failure is a possibility they could miss these cool little hidden things right it's possible that they missed it or they overlooked it um these are players who really derive their joy from some kind of mastery of the game world right through through a lot of persistence and careful examination and intellectualism um they really prefer those richly detailed worlds to keep these players happy as a dm you're often creating a lot of things that will never see the light of day mm. so yeah, are- you never really know where they're gonna zig right like they're they're something is gonna catch their attention and they're gonna be like oh well let's go open that door and you're like but that we just only mentioned it. Yeah. What door? I've mentioned that in passing. <laughs> I didn't even think that. Okay, now I have to come up with a, like a whole thing for what's in that bar, and that's a bar, so that means that we're going to have a whole scene around it. Man, I did not plan for this in my encounters tonight. Yeah, these are the players where rich world building will pay dividends. Um, and remember, something that I always tell other DMs is, if it didn't come into play, it never existed, and you can just reuse it later. It's totally okay to recycle the things that players don't find. That's fine. I think there's an important nuance here about discovery, however, that that is is worth mentioning, which is just as much as exploring 
the world and discovering new things is satisfies this, so too is it often taking established things, established rules, established classes, established characters, established whatever, and putting them in new light. Putting them in situations, maybe two different situations. What happens if we take this character away from their home and put them in our well-established home over here? You know, these are the kinds of characters who also might just, if we were comparing it to a video game, they would, let's say Skyrim, you go and buy a house and you decorate your house with everything inside of it, not because it has any mechanical benefit for the game. But it connects to the world and there's things they found. Right, they found this. This is the... This is the the body, and you're like, why do you have the body of a bear in your attic? Well, that's a bear that almost killed me that I, I saved when I take it home. And then I skinned it, and, that, you know, but, and the skin is downstairs. You know, like, yeah, you see a little overlap here with uh, role players, right? Or the narrative player that we often. talked about earlier, Very or the often. fantasy player, right? So the fantasy player is different from your discovery player in that that fantasy player wants to fulfill a role in the world, right? Mm-hmm. They want to fit into a role. They want to role play. The Discovery Gamer is much more interested in exploring the world and finding its hidden secrets rather than fitting into a particular role. They want to explore. Um, So the next one we're going to talk about is uh, one that's a little tricky. I find this to be one of the hardest to deal with. Um, This one is called Expression, and this is the game as self-discovery. This is where people tend to have an urge to express themselves, and they want to create and share unique things. And... These are often your DMs. <laughs> I think these are also your mischief makers, too. I think so, because they usually want to stand out. They want to prioritize their unique creative expression. These are your players who always play against type. They push back against stereotypes. But they're also the player that cares more about their character than anything else, mm-hmm. because their character needs to, to be this unique expression. They want to leave their mark on your fantasy world and that's how they want to express themselves. Um, they, they really like to have creative and narrative controls. That's why they tend to like to DM. And so giving them plenty of character options is a good start. But you're also going to have to give them agency within the plot and the storyline. Mm-hmm. They need to feel like they can leave their mark on the world, express themselves, and have it be unique. And somehow affect that world. How do you deal with uh, expression players like myself when they're in your games? I mean, I think it really depends on what the expression looks like. I'm definitely one of these players. Sometimes it looks like I'm going to play this thing because I want to see where it goes, in which case, you know, the best, in in my mind, only way to deal with that character, that player effectively is like, okay, chase it down. You know, you want to see what it looks like if you build a crazy glass cannon scion monk hybrid Go for it. Chase it down. You know, you want to be a goblin alchemist. I've done both of those and they're both fun. Chase it down. See where it goes. Let them play it out. The thing about self-expression is that when they are done expressing themselves and they will have an end to it, then they'll go on and do something else. You know, they'll find other, some other interesting kind of thing. But it's like the, it's like the mischief maker from earlier. You they're know, a little they, fickle. Yeah. They, they're like, well, they want to misbehave a little bit. Mostly they want to do something. They're expressing some parts of themselves. The players, they're, they're interested in this that they don't get to do day to day. And again, I come back to, this is like we talked about in prior episodes, setting the container is so important because if it's a safe space and it's a good enough space for everybody, they can express it. And we're like, hey, cool, man. That's some nice pink fluffy bunnies you got coming out of your ears. That's pretty cool. That's kind of weird, but all right, I'm going to go kill this knoll over here. Right. And you just let them express themselves. It's give them a little bit of creative and narrative control, give them plenty of character options, ability to customize, let their character feel unique and special. If they want to be the, like the air, air cockro with their wings amputated, just let them do it. <laughs> right, right. 
though that would be pretty shitty stat wise because the whole stat block is geared towards that flight. But hey, they're the type of players that love to play against types, so they probably have a blast. So let's talk about the last one. This is the one that, just like casual gamers, can be really hard to understand and people tend to misunderstand what these people are here for. This one is called Submission, which I think is hilarious, but it's really, (laughs) it's really, right? It's really the game is a pastime. These are people who, for them, they just use games to unwind and relax. Uh, They prefer the beer and pretzel, kick in the door, murder hobo style gameplay. They're super happy with a basic old school dungeon crawl. They don't want too much challenge. They want to kick back, drink a beer, roll some dice. They love mindless fun. Um, They often instigate things when they're bored, just like the instigator we talked about earlier. Um, And they just one thing they really dislike is when they're like mindless, serious fun has like these serious lasting consequences, which as a DM is your kind of your instinct to do to them because, oh, they're oh, they're doing this stupid mindless shit. Well, little do they know this is going to bite them in the ass in two sessions when that elf comes back and murders them in their sleep. Um, So don't do that. I think one of the interesting things here that is often seen in these players is that they have a they have an enjoyment they get out of the game history itself almost. They like to play the game in the way the game has been played. It's like nostalgia. The culture of the game. Right. They're like, let's play Dungeons and Dragons, which means that we're probably going to play it in a way similar to how we first played it, which means that it's a trip down memory lane a little bit. It feels something like, let's make up our old hardcore power gamer characters and let's go murder hoboing around the countryside because we can. And, uh, you know, or we're going to go run Tomb of Horrors again. And, you know, this sort of buying into the history, the culture the artifacts of the game itself be whatever it might be. I mean, for us, D&D. But this is, you look in other video games as examples, it's like, well, I love the Final Fantasies because they're Final Fantasies. Not that all of them are good or even well told. It's just like they, you know, they have the miniatures and they like all, they have all the art, you know, maybe they're also into cosplay, whatever. And and as long as it's not too challenging, these are not players that are doing speed runs on Dark Souls. No. No, They, they don't want too much challenge. They don't want to run through Tomb of Horrors. I think the, the the way that I tend to satisfy players who are looking for game as pastime is to give them a nod of nostalgia. Every session, if I can, and no less than every other session. You know, give them a solid like, hey, man, I got you. Or, hey, yeah, I understand. You're totally, we're going to do this the old school way. What what are, we're going to do with what you're comfortable with? Because that's what they're there for. Like, we're going to play a game. You want to feel good about it. They're not looking chill for... out and have fun. Right, right. I don't want to get too serious. That's Similar the to the, the casual game. They're not looking for a serious game. Um, that's just not their jam. So when you're looking at these aesthetics, um, the reason they can be helpful is you can look at these, and probably the best way is just to check out the Wikipedia on this. You don't need to read the actual paper that they wrote. The Wikipedia will suffice. Look at the categories. Look at the aesthetics. And one thing that I think helps kind of figure out what aesthetics work for you is look at the aesthetic and write down what's a deal break for you in regards to that. For example, if I'm looking at the sensation aesthetic game is a sense of pleasure, for me, I need a map, I want miniatures, I, I, can, I like theater of the mind when it's well done, but I really, really prefer those things. And for me, that's kind of you know a higher rating. Whereas if I look at something like narrative, I don't really care about narrative as much. The structure I know is going to be warped. It's not a movie. It's not a TV show. I'm much more of an expression player in that I care about my character and being able to express myself through my character Mm. uniquely. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I hadn't encountered this until you and I started talking about it, this MDA framework and what it reminds me of, the mechanics 
sort of the metaphor in my mind are the mechanics are like the lines on a road and the dynamic is you driving down the road and the aesthetics are what the scenery is that you see, what your experience is as you drive. So, you know... What road do you take? Right. Where do you go? What time of day is it? Uh, how warm or cold is it? What did you wear? Who do you have with you? All that. Um, and I think that there's some... I've tried hard to make sure that I can relate to as many players as I can, you know? But there's something I can get out of all of these. But if I was going to go for, I think, the ones I I prefer... Expression is interesting, but I really fall into discovery more than most other things. You what, know? Would, what would be your top three? It's got to be. I mean, discovery is first, but I think that because the game is has such opportunity to to be a unique medium, I also maybe after that is sensation, right? I want to have this be a memorable thing that we all look back at and go, "Oh yeah, that was a unique experience." You know, like that one game I played that one time, and oh, I've never had an experience like that before. I will remember that for the rest of my life. And I'll give you a, a really easy example. I played at Gen Con one year. Oh, Gen Con, Gen Con, Gen Con, but so good. Uh, Gray Ranks, which is a, it's, you play as child soldiers in World War II Poland. Very heavy stuff. Heavy, heavy. And I sat down with a buddy of mine and six other guys that had never met before. And by the end of a six hour session, we were crying. And none of us had ever played any game like that, you know, but it was such a memorable, very vivid experience that I saw what it could do. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. That's why it's, there's always value in playing games outside of Dungeons and Dragons. And right. one of the things I think is really helpful with the aesthetics if you run games is if you know what your top like three or four aesthetics are, then you kind of know what your DM style is and what kind of game that you run. Like for me, like I am really big on making sure that my game has some verisimilitude. Like it may be goofy, but for me, the world building is really important. And I also really like sensation. And anyone playing my games is going to find those things. But I think I think the third one that I, I probably would go for, it's tough. You know, it's maybe I'm torn between like fantasy or narrative or expression. And it's some part of, I guess it's like kind of a mixture because I the, the third thing that's atop for me is I want the players to enjoy this special activity in given circumstance. And as an actor, one of the things we trained in bard school was what we call given circumstance, which is all right, if you're gonna if you're gonna be in a role, what are the given circumstances leading up to that very moment before the scene begins? You know? And it's an exercise in your imagination. Where were you? What did it smell like just now? Was it raining outside? Are you itchy? You know, are you hungry? Are you angry or horny? Like what what's the given circumstances under of you right now? And I think that the ability to have, and I think that the ability to have given circumstance as a tool that you think of is invaluable for life, just general life. It's one of the big things that I like about this game is that it helps us cultivate skills in ourselves. And I think that that's why it's hard to pin it on one of these things that we can take elsewhere. It helps us step into somebody else's shoes. It can help us think about a situation in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. Uh, it's just how our imagination works. So. It's it's definitely good. It gives us different perspectives and it forces like kind of some self-reflection. Like if you're looking at these aesthetics, you're probably thinking, wow, okay, what kind of game do I run? Which ones are important to me? And the funny thing is I'm sure your players could look at a list and tell you like, oh yeah, his games have these qualities and these are the important things in their game. Like if someone runs a very challenging game where death is possible and you really are on your toes, 
you know that player values challenge. Mm. Um, but the thing to remember, regardless of whether you're looking at player types or you're using a framework like the MDA, is these are just ways to think about the game. They are tools for you. You're, there's, don't be a slave to these systems and these rules. They're, they're just ways to help you organize why your players are coming back to the table. And if they're already coming back to the table week after week, you're not doing too bad. Right. So don't feel like you need to go and redo everything. Use this to better understand the type of game that you run and why your players come and play at your table. Because especially in Dungeons and Dragons and in life in general, you want to avoid absolutes. I mean, we all know only a Sith <laughs> deals in absolutes. I saw your face. You knew I was going to say that. Um, you want to think critically, question everything. And for me, my personal tip is never forget that humans are stupid. <laughs> yes, and it's you, very true. <laughs> and you are, you are one too. So there's always the possibility you're wrong. I mean, I know I am, but you are clearly a robot. I mean, you know, I tried, I hide it pretty well, so... <laughs> It take it's. I have a high bluff check <laughs> on the regular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that's that's part of the crux of it is how to talk with your players about the game you have, and the most important part again is people in a space playing a game together, rolling dice, talking about it, and just showing up at a game and not having given any thought to it, at least for what you want out of it for yourself, is almost a setup for failure. And, you know, sometimes you're desperate and you make it work, or maybe you just have friends and you're like, oh, I've known this guy forever. I'm just going to put up with the fact that sometimes he wants to be a murder hobo. But we all do it from time to time. Right. And and that's okay. It just, there are a lot of games that we, you know, and if the internet is full of trolls, but even before the internet was around, there are all the stories around how games go wrong. And because the game is so flexible and so potent, uh, a tool for our imaginations and social exercises together. I think it's worth talking about it with tools. Yeah, and I think the D and D is special in that when you look at the aesthetics and you look at D and D, it's pretty neutral on most of those. In that you could kind of push that slider, like in a video game setting. You know, you could push those sliders in different ways, and that's why D and D appeals to so many people, and also why it's very hard to pin down. In that it, it's pretty neutral on most of those aesthetics, and you can kind of push into much as much of those as you'd like. There's certain ones that are clearly hard baked into it, like challenge right. or fantasy. That's right. kind of the point of role playing games. Right. However, you know, there's other ones like sensory, which you can kind of modulate. Like you don't have to use miniatures and dice. You can do everything in the theater of the mind. And I think the fact that D and D remains somewhat neutral on a lot of these or flexible possibly is why it appeals to so many different people, but also why you can run so many different types of Dungeons & Dragons games. Totally. And I think that one of the best ways to get a sense for how these different systems work and how games are sliced in different ways is to play other games and bring back the learnings you have from them to D&D. &D. I know. Because games are, are built for different purposes, and D&D &D is a good general-purpose role-playing game. I think it's why it's so popular. You know, Pathfinder is too, but it's basically D&D &D from those other guys over there and gals. 3.5. Right. Uh, you know, but for instance, if you go look at uh, Paranoia, this is a game where player versus player is expected. 
And the last person alive is the winner. And it's a role-playing game. And that's anathema to like everything that we just talked about. But it has a very interesting and useful place as far as role-playing games are concerned. Just like GURPS or Rifts or many of the other really crunchy... One of my favorite examples to go the other direction is Dungeon World. It's clearly a love letter to Dungeons and Dragons, but it's it's more rules light. It's more freeform. I have to say some of the best DMing advice I've seen is stuff that I've found surrounding Dungeon World. And so even though it can be a hassle to learn a new system or play a new game, conventions are great for things like this. They can actually get you better at Dungeons and Dragons. You'll notice in this podcast we talked about video games a ton to help reference what we were talking about. And video games are one of the reasons player types are such a common concept these days. But like we said, do what you want to do. Yeah, I think the only last bit of advice I would say, it's just true for D&D generally, but especially for managing player types, both as a DM and as a player. Uh, This was from a very short book I read once. I think it was role-playing games for improv or something like that. And it had some short quips. It was like one page, one bit of advice. And the last one was be obvious. And what that means basically is if you don't know what to do for your players or as a player, do what looks like the obvious thing just to you, whatever the most obvious thing is to you. It can, in your mind, it's probably like boring and kind of dull. Nine out of 10 times, it'll just be obvious. And everybody's like, okay, that was obvious. But like maybe one out of those 10 times, it's going to be brilliant. Well, it's going to line up with the aesthetics that you like, right? Your values as a gamer, it's going to clearly line up with those. And if your players are already coming back to your table, they're clearly okay with those aesthetics probably. Yeah, but in the aesthetics overlap just like the player types overlap, we're more than one. So sometimes when you're just doing whatever that obvious thing is, it'll scratch an extra itch for somebody and they go, that was really interesting. I didn't expect that. That was cool. I really thought that was neat. I remember that. And you go, oh, wow, cool. I didn't. Great. <laughs> Good for you. Good for me. Yeah. So don't get caught too much up in player types, but they can help you understand your players and offer them a better game. Okay. So I think that covers it for talking about player types. Thanks for tuning in to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skylar. I'm Justin. This is your podcast of many things. Over and out.